This is Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. We are your hosts. I'm Jeff. Hola, hola. Soy Carla. It's Rachel here. What's good, y'all? I'm Ashraf. And I'm Madeline. Why Change is a podcast that brings listeners around the globe to learn how arts, culture, and creativity, especially as applied by young people, can change the world, one community at a time. You're invited each week to learn and laugh while exploring the question, why change? All right, let's get started. Welcome to this episode of the Why Change podcast. Jeff here with my friend and co-host Ashraf Hasham. Ashraf, how are you doing? What's going on, Jeff? Good to see you. It is great to connect with you also. I feel like it has been a while since we last spoke, um, maybe if only because we've had some uh, end of summer holidays and things that create a little bit of a, a divide. So mentally, I am now in fall. I am in the school year and, and sort of ready for the the last um, bit of time in this calendar year to close out a very roller coaster 2021. <laughs> What's the latest with you? Yeah, I definitely needed Labor Day to happen for me to feel as though the, the year is is on its way out. Uh, and I'm excited for the rest of the holidays that come in September, October, November, and December. It always feels like this part of the year, there's so many built-in three-day weekends that uh, we're, it goes by faster. And it was, we're already been going by super fast. So I'm a little bit, um, I'm both excited and also terrified. <laughs> agreed, agreed. I'm only assuming, though, that the October holiday that you're referring to is my birthday, which is of course. October 5th. <laughs> Yes, uh, which is the week after this episode will drop. So we will, uh, maybe we should do a birthday special. I don't know, Ooh. A, a podcast where maybe we we drink some wine or something. Um, well, listen, I know you had a really fantastic conversation this week with a mutual friend of ours. So tell me a little bit about how that came to be. Yeah, so uh, I talked with Quanice Floyd this weekend, soon to be Dr. Quanice Floyd. She has so many degrees that she'll tell us about, and she's working on another right now, and um, is kind of a Renaissance queen woman person. Like, she uh, is everywhere all the time, and always... Um, and it's always going to be relevant to whatever conversation you're having, particularly in the field that we're in, in arts education and arts administration. Um, she is an advocate. She is an educator. She is um, she is outspoken in only the best way. And she, yeah, is 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 there for the people doing the work. And in this case, that is folks doing not only arts education work, but just DEI work, diversity, equity, and inclusion work across the sector. She founded um, Arts uh, arts Administrators of Color Network, which had gotten a Mackenzie Scott gift um, recently, which is a big deal. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it really shows the support that, uh, that the world of philanthropy can have in, uh, in equity work and specifically in supporting um, professionals of color uh, and so much more. I mean, you'll listen to it audience uh, and community and you'll be stoked you may have already known her from from her work she also has a podcast called black arts admin bitch um where i was a guest and i know uh, jeff you probably um have have at least like been in cahoots with Quanis as you are both podcast um folks yourself how do you know Quanis? i you know yeah i was gonna say in cahoots is like the best uh description of our relationship uh Quanis and i actually our history goes back I can think of a really poignant moment. We both attended a conference that was held in Philadelphia um, and we both took the same train back from Philly to DC. And that train 
broke down. So we no had way. to get out and hang out for a couple hours in Baltimore, <laughs> which is just down the road from DC. Like why no one drove, I'm not really sure. But we ended up um, kind of debriefing the conference and getting to know each other. At that time, she was a music educator. I was working in a previous role. And um, ever since we sort of have been um, in a parallel path of, of getting to know each other through our work and our own career trajectories. Um, and recently, um, are two folks that that just kind of don't do a lot together formally, but definitely are in each other's worlds and strive to be, whether it be podcast episodes or co-presenting at conferences or truly just catching up um, and, and seeing what's going on in each other's lives uh, and work. So um, I was thrilled to hear that you had a conversation with Kwanis and I'm excited for our community at the Why Change Podcast to listen because Kwanis is one of those people that absolutely is about change. So without further ado, um, why don't we let our audience listen to the episode? But one thing to note, if you are listening out loud, there is some choice language that is used throughout the interview for punctuation and impact. I certainly love it, but just for anyone who is cognizant of language at this time, you may want to listen with some earbuds in. Hello, hello, community. Today, I have a very special guest. I'm so excited and proud to call her my friend and colleague. It's Kwanis Floyd, y'all. Hey, whoop, whoop. You may know Kwanis from her amazing podcast, Black Arts Admin Bitch or Bab. Or perhaps you know her from her incredible advocacy and accountability work in the larger arts and culture ecosystem, particularly in arts education. Um, but either way, you're going to learn about her now. So welcome, Kwanis, to the podcast. Yay, thank you for having me. This is great. Oh, I'm so happy to have you here. I'm super stoked um, because I can't believe you haven't been on the podcast yet. You are all around arts education in, at least in the U.S., um, people know your name. Tell us about you and your journey and where you are today. Why so many people know your name? Oh, Lord. I don't even know where to get started. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, I guess my journey into arts education started um, when I was four years old. So my mother passed away from breast cancer when I was four. And so, like, uh, I was dealing as a child of that, like, that young age. I was dealing with a lot of emotions and trying to figure out, like, life and why my mother wasn't here. And, you know, it's hard for people to explain to a kid, like, your mommy passed away. And you're like, what is that? Right? Like, you're just not quite understanding that. So um, I ended up, like, just acting out because I didn't know how to process that. You're a kid. You don't know how to process feelings like that. And so um, I was a little bit bad, a little bit bad. I was, you know, a little bad. <laughs> we get in trouble a lot. Um, and then my grandmother and my grand aunt um, put me into uh, piano lessons at a community music school, Staten Island, Staten Island Conservatory of Music. Um, and so I started taking piano lessons and it just like stuck. Um, I went to a uh, public school in Staten Island uh, called Petrides, and at the time Petrides was called a laboratory school, which is basically like a magnet school. Um, and so they ended up having like a violin program. So I was already in, uh, you know, piano after school lessons. And then this violin program pops up and my, my grandmother was like, why don't you just try the violin too? And I was like, why? And she was like, well, it's music. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. And this is me in like the third grade now. And so I ended up, uh, going into Suzuki violin and I just like loved it. And the violin like stuck with me. So, um, 
I stayed in all of my uh, schools, like performance groups until uh, I graduated. So it was like, it was actually a, at the time, a second grade to eighth grade school, which is, again, it's a weird like laboratory school. They were trying to, it was for gifted and talented. And then um, I ended up going to a performing arts high school in New York City um, called Talent, Talent Unlimited. And that is on like the Upper East Side-ish area, not really Upper East Side, but close to Upper East Side. Um, and so this was a school that was full of like black and brown kids who looked like me, everybody from all over the city, Washington Heights, the Bronx, Brooklyn, uh, Queens, everybody, they were from all over. And so it's just a whole bunch of like singing kids and dancing kids and instrumental kids just coming together and playing in jazz band and playing in orchestra and putting on performances. So it was, it was just a really dope high school to go to. Um, and then I think that's kind of where I developed um, into my own. Um, and so uh, when I was uh, probably around, I don't know, maybe nine, so I'm going a little bit backwards a little bit, but I remember seeing Mr. Holland's Opus and that was like my favorite movie of all time. Mr. Holland, you know, was like changing the lives of his students through music. And he was also like supportive of them outside of the classroom. So I was like, I want to do that. So then that that's what led me to that performing arts high school. And then I ended up becoming a music education major at Howard University. And so the reason I chose Howard specifically and not like a conservatory is because um, I wanted to go to a predominantly black school. Um, and I felt like going to Howard would help kind of solidify how I felt about my identity as a black woman in this world. And so I ended up moving to DC, staying in um, the DC area. Um, and I got my bachelor's in music education, graduated, started teaching in uh, Maryland public school system. Uh, got my first master's in music education, uh, still teaching. Got my second master's in arts management while I was still teaching. Um, I did a number of uh, fellowships, so I, I was working at the National PTA, helping with their arts and education programs. Um, I had worked at like the DC Collaborative for Arts and Humanities, like uh, working at Theater Lab. I was just like hustling all around DC when I was in college and then when I was in grad school. Um, so I was building up kind of like this, uh, I guess people would look at it now as like building up a brand of who you are within the edu arts education uh, landscape. But I was just trying to like get my foot into a little bit of everything, right? I just wanted to kind of learn and learn from people who were doing really good work, in, especially in DC. And then learn from like uh, myself, right? Like not only learning from myself, but like trying to figure out that identity piece again. Like I, I going to Howard helped me kind of establish that identity as a black woman, but now who am I as a black woman who is in arts education? Um, and so like from there, I, uh, once I graduated from American University, I uh, started the organization Arts Administrators of Color Network. And that organization is dedicated to people of color, BIPOC, global majority folks um, who work in the arts management, arts administration field. Um, that organization uh, has grown uh, exponentially over the past five years. Um, and I recently stepped down from it in June, 2021. Um, but it's grown to a place where I could only take it but to a point, you know, I can only take it to point A to point B, from point A to point B. And I felt like there's other people who have brilliant ideas and innovative ideas to help kind of expand the organization. Um, so right now, what am I doing? 
I am the executive director of arts education in Maryland schools. Um, and so in that role, I serve as a registered lobbyist uh, for in the state of Maryland. I work really closely with the Maryland State Department of Education's Fine Arts Office. So shout out to Alicia Lee, who y'all should have here on the podcast too. Um, and uh, we work to advocate for um, arts education and ensuring that arts education is accessible to all 900,000 students in the state of Maryland's public school system. Um, because she's a federal worker, um, I mean, a statewide worker, she cannot like lobby like I can. So she'll tell me like what some issues that might be coming up. And then I go out there and support the educators and the teachers and the parents and anyone who's an arts education supporter and try to uh, come up with solutions so that we can get some educational policies to pass through uh, with arts education in mind. And so um, I've been really building up the organization over the past two years, building up the infrastructure, one thing, because of my work with Arts Administrators of Color Network, I'm really focused on uh, uh, community mobilization and community organizing. And so with AIMS, the work that I do is trying to mobilize and activate people on the ground, such as educators and parents um, and students, um, to want to advocate for arts education in their own districts and their own communities. Um, so we have a program called the Campaign School that we're getting ready to pilot and that's um, from the help of Fractured Atlas, because they used to have an artist campaign school. And I reached out to them and was like, hey, can we do this on a hyper local level? And they were like, sure. So um, now we have our arts educator campaign school in the state of Maryland, where we're trying to get people to run for political office. The thing about the program and being a nonprofit is that you can only provide resources to people running for office, but you can't necessarily like support people running for office, right? You can't you can't um, have a candidate, you can't support a specific candidate. So we tell them that we help build them up to the point until uh, they like say that they're ready to run. And then once they're ready to run, we can no longer support them in that way by providing those resources. Um, Cause yeah, 501c3 nonprofit laws <laughs> is a thing. Um, but we also are going to have a, a series of advocacy one-on-one -on -one workshops. Um, we have the, we work with Maryland State Department of Education to do the anti-racist educators in the arts learning lab. We have the arts education symposium for anti-racism um, in November. So we just have a lot of programs and projects and things. Um, Ames is like my nine to five. It's not really nine to five because you're an executive director. So it's more like a nine to nine. And um, on top of that, I also uh, do racial equity strategy for arts organizations. Um, I'm actually in the middle of starting a uh, lobbying firm to support arts and education organizations in DC. So that'll be here in t a couple of months because I've been working on this for probably a year and a half now. Um, I am a, a an adjunct professor at the University of Cincinnati and also will be teaching at Drexel University. I'm also a uh, doctoral student in educational leadership and management at Drexel University. So I just got a lot of stuff going on. I got a lot of stuff going on. It's a lot of things happening. Wow, wow, wow. Oh my gosh, that's so much fun stuff. Like half of that stuff, I, I feel like I knew and half of that's new to me. Um, I find so much solace in these conversations that you and I have together. And some of them is recorded, some of them's not. Uh, only because like we share a lot of um a lot of the same movements. You know, you like you said, had uh kind of ha like having your fingers in a lot of different types of pie. And I'm the same way. I just love knowing what's going on and being involved and participating. Um 
it was also in elementary school where um, arts was exposed to me in a really, um, really profound way and stayed with me for the rest of my life. I also wanted to be, uh, <laughs> I wanted to be somebody that I saw on TV. In my case, it was a, a librarian, but yeah, somewhere in the schools that never ended up happening, but um such a beautiful thing. You're a doctoral student, you're a professor, you are coming up with solutions with community, you're advocating for 900,000 students in Minneapolis, I'm sorry, Maryland public schools, and uh, Arts Administrators of Color Network, um, like you said, has grown exponentially, got a Mackenzie Scott gift um, pretty recently too, so wow, wow, wow. Two two master's degrees, everybody, not just the one. <laughs> <laughs> and I forgot to add that I'm on the D.C. Commission of the Arts and Humanities, so that's, that's the D.C. Wow. Council. Ooh, yeah. doesn't stop. Yes. And uh, nobody else can do it but you, right? I mean, uh, the way that, however, I mean, you, you, you ended up saying, you know, it's time for me to move on from Arts Administrators of Color Network uh, in June. And I think that um, for me in hearing you talk about your, your history and your current sort of state of affairs, uh, sounds like you're learning to no, we're not learning, but you are you are building some boundaries. You are knowing when your time is up. You are moving on to the next thing in a way that's modeling it for other people. You and I had this conversation before how it's important for folks to to move on, to to have uh, the next thing, or to make space for others to grow into their leadership. Um, and I think yeah. that's just so inspiring. Yeah, and I, I didn't add this, but I had taught for almost uh, ten years in the public school systems in Maryland. And then I decided to transition into arts administration after I got my degree. And once like arts administrators of color was up and running. And so, you know, I was teaching every day in the classroom. And so I love, absolutely loved, I taught elementary mm. music. So I absolutely, we had fun. We had a good time. Yeah, you did. Um, and so, you know, when my students would leave the classroom, I would see how other people would talk about them. Even in like staff meetings, I would see how people would describe them, they will say those kids, those parents, da, da, da. you know, that language, that, mm. that real negative language that I didn't necessarily like. And, you know, I would try to confront that, but people ended up calling me the aggressive one, right? I'm, I'm, I'm wow. aggressive. Nobody wants to talk to you no. Uh, but so I kept seeing that and I was like, it's just something that's not right. And I feel like I could be doing so much more, right? Like, mm -hmm. and as a classroom teacher, I love educating my students you know these are the next future leaders right but it was like i want to do so much more for y'all i did so much more that i want to do and that's when i transitioned out of the classroom um on a whim and i i ended up uh transitioning and going into arts education advocacy because i was like i really like i really want not just the 500 students in this school to to get amazing arts education i want all of the students to be able to get amazing arts education that's beautiful. And and the fact that um, this sort of the uh, non-strengths-based language, you know, was the thing that brought you away and, and started questioning and maybe radicalized part of you into what is happening here? Why can't this be the same as other folks uh, who, are, who are receiving the similar educations, right? That is... Um, that is quite something. I wonder, too, um, what... Do you keep in touch with any of the kids that you used to teach? I keep in touch with the teachers. That's fascinating. Okay. I don't necessarily keep in touch with the kids. Um, but yeah, I've, I've created relationships with educators and they usually tell me, hey, do you remember so-and-so? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> right? And they, and they was like, they asked about you, you know? So- um, oh, That warms my heart. Yeah, and so it's just, you know, 
And that's why I still kind of teach now. Like, that's why I do adjunct work. Because even though these are, like, grown people, because they're in, you know, a grad program and, and learning from me, but I still love to share the information that I have and the experiences that I have with others. So um, I was able to do that in the elementary classroom, and we had fun doing it. And now I'm doing it on the graduate school level, and we're, I'm, we're trying to have fun doing it. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit of a different. different starting place I'm sure but it's important for people and learners everywhere to have that imagination I'm sure you cultivated um, as an elementary school music teacher Um, one last follow-up question there is um, one of your master's degrees was arts administration Um, what led you to that even though you were kind of already maybe doing it or maybe you were kind of exploring that 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 field and what did you learn from that degree that did that get you anywhere? Like a lot of arts administration people on this podcast. So I'm just curious. Yeah. Um, so I was teaching when I applied. I think when I was in college, when I was at Howard specifically, I was on the homecoming steering committee. And if you know anything about homecomings, Howard has the largest homecoming in the United States. Wow. Um, they probably will tell you the world. Uh, and so, um, And so I was on that committee and I ended up putting on the R&B concert in, I think it was 2008. Oof, I don't even remember what the year it was. Um, but I put on the R&B concert and I loved that aspect of it. Like I was behind the scenes, you know, I was um, calling uh, managers and booking agents and I was just like putting together runs the show and, you know, had, we had a budget and I was making sure we didn't go over a budget. It was just really weird wonky stuff that I was like, this is fascinating. Is there something, like, is this called something? And so I'm like, I think I might have Googled something and it was like, arts administration and i was like oh okay that's cool um but i didn't think about it until like later on when i was an educator i was like i think i need to go into arts administration like i want to be able to run um a a nonprofit. i want to be able to support communities through nonprofit work and so um i ended up going to american university which is a fabulous program and honestly, I don't think if I did, I think if I didn't go to Americans arts management program, I probably wouldn't be where I am right now. Um, because American has, it was one of the oldest programs in regards to arts administration, arts management. Um, the alumni base is like extremely strong. Um, because of American, I was able to do the fellowship at the national PTA. Mm. Um, I was able to connect with other fabulous uh, 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 cohort members. Um, who work in arts institutions all around the country. Um, But also, like, I got to learn finance and financial management in the arts, which I I still hate to this day, but I actually know way more because of going through that program. (laughs) And as an ED, you need to know financial management. Um, So... Um, but it, you know, it, it was interesting because you got to learn the different aspects of like arts administration. You got to learn the artistic side, you got mm. to learn the, you know, the behind the scenes production side, the producing side, um, the presenting side. It, it's really, really, um, fascinating. It was a really great experience and, um, I wouldn't change that for the world. And again, I, I don't think if I didn't go through that program, I probably would not be where I am today. Wow, shout out to American U. That's amazing. What was the R&B concert? Who was the headliner? Who'd you book? Raheem Devon, who Ooh. I absolutely love. I don't I don't know if Raheem Devon is as like nationally mainstream, but he's amazing. I love him. If you don't listen to Raheem Devon, you should. He's actually a DC uh native. 
So he's born and raised in DC. He has like multiple albums out. Um, he's very well known in like the the I would say the Gen Xers, the Black community Gen Xers. <laughs> Word. Um, and so I'm not a Gen Xer. I'm a millennial. So we know him too. Um, but millennials. His, he has, he gives like really soulful R and B music that people really know. Um, favorite song is Customer. So listen to that if you get a chance. Customer we'll by Rodney Hahn. We'll put that in the show notes. Yes. 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 <laughs> I love it. We need to tag him. Hope maybe he could be my friend. There you go, Rodney <laughs> Devon. Come through. I met him at the very end of that concert. He probably doesn't remember me because since then he's had probably three million <laughs> concerts. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Thank you for um, for delving into that. I also had a degree in arts administration, but it came from uh, my undergrad and it was at, in Staten Island, Wagner College. Um, so that that's what another thing that ties us together that I find so fascinating is the Staten Island connection. What do you don't find very often? So uh, never uh, one you find never <laughs> <laughs> one you find never often. <laughs> Shout out to Wagner College and Staten Island. Shout out to Shaolin. Okay, so let's move on. Um, you mentioned you're like so you're doing so much all the time. Um, what is something that you're working on right now that you're super excited about? And it doesn't have to be your thing. It could be somebody else's thing that you're excited about too. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited. Uh, if people know me, if you're listening to me and you know me, um, if you listen to me right now and you know me, you know that I like to fuck shit up a lot. Um, so yes. a lot of the work that I support and the work that I do, it has a big vision of fucking shit up. Um, so I'm really, uh, excited about PACE, um, the Progressive Arts Education Coalition. And I know we'll talk a little bit about this later, but like, I feel like this is an, a prime opportunity for a lot of, uh, collaborative collective work to happen in the field. Um, especially as things are starting to quote unquote reopen and all that. But I think this is a, there's a lot of opportunity for us to really like destroy systems that have not been working for us previously. Reach, yes. Um, oh my gosh, tell me about a recent interaction you had with one of these systems that you're trying to destroy. Oh gosh, <laughs> just one, just one um, recent one. It's it's I mean it's every day. It's so I a lot of, when I go into you know lobbyists is a very antiquated system being a lobbyist because all it is is about it's about kissing asses of legislators mm -hmm. <laughs> in order to get them to do what you want that's all it is and, it, and it, if you're not in the in crowd then they will ignore you and you have to prove yourself to them and it's like why do i and then you know it's also a majority like white male field like this is like that's pretty much it. <laughs> Lobbying is just, is very antiquated, is very old, is very white. Um, you have to wear suit and tie. You have to look a certain way. I can't, you know, I got braids in my hair right now. I got, when it's lobbying season, you know, I gotta groom up my hair. You got, you have to, it's so, it's such a weird Ugh. process of a, like assimilation. Like you have to assimilate. And if you don't fit in, and I, automatically I don't fit in, I'm a big black, woman like i'm 511 like I, I like i don't fit in automatically um so it's like you, you really have to go out through your way to be someone that you're not in order to get what you want which is really terrible so that's why i like um am excited also excited about start, starting my own lobbying firm because yeah. i want to i want to do lobbying my way and our way right like lobbying to us is like building transformational relationships and getting things done for the right of 
the greater good, right? Like, and I don't think that's that's not what lobbying currently is. It's about who can, you know, spend the most on gifts for a certain lawmaker or who can take them out to lavish drinks at the W Hotel downtown. And it's just, that's not how we work, right? Like in order for you to pass uh, something that's helpful to a group of people, I shouldn't have to go above, like, I shouldn't have to do that. You should already be like, as a legislator, already be, uh, I guess, programmed to want to help the greater good. Um, And I I was actually in an Uber one day going home. I forgot where I was at. But I was talking to the Uber driver because he was just like, what do you do? And I was like, yeah, I lobby, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, you know, lobbying is not even allowed in certain countries. And I was like, like, that blew my mind because then wow. I think about it because that shit is unethical as hell. Like, <laughs> yeah, you're like it paid to, to make make it sweeter, make a sweet deal. Right. right. You're making deals. Ugh. Right. You're making deals. And Ugh. it's unethical. Um, so I was like, that makes so much more sense. I didn't even really think about lobbying on like the international context, but you know, in America it's, it's trash, but I mean, I enjoy what I do because I get to yell at people too. Like you get to testify, hey. you get, to get mad. It's almost like, it's like, uh, being a community organizer right. in a way, but the community organizing skills aren't necessarily what people consider lobbying. But it is, it is, it is. It's it's more collective and it's more collaborative and it's more uh, uh, ethical and it's more for the people. And that's something I don't hear a lot of lobbyists say is that they're doing deep community outreach, building transformative relationships, like you said, that they are um, going out and seeking ways to make the world a better place. Sure, with a focus, like yours is arts education, certainly, but there's other focuses that are like really just about getting some dollars into some people's pockets that already have dollars. And that oh, is. hell yeah. If you look up like the highest paid federal lobbyists, like they get paid like over 20, 30 million dollars for these firms. Whoa. Like they take on these big, like this is the for-profit side of lobbying, right? Mm-hmm. Like, cause you know, arts and education is usually on the nonprofit side of lobbying. Mm-hmm. But the for-profit side of lobbying, there is so much money. Like people are making multi-million dollar deals just for someone to go up to a random senator or a random, you know, house delegate, whatever, to say, hey, I want this law passed and I'll do this for you. And then they do it. It's so, it's fascinating. It's really fascinating to me. And it's almost like a, like Taylor's oldest time type of stuff, right? Like it's just kind of classic, um, like power structures and how they favor, um, how they favor the global minority. Uh, and unfortunately, we have built systems that uphold that favoritism. Well, I'm glad that you're out there doing some work to establish a new way of doing it. What does a lobbying firm look like that is led by and and serving community? Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 really fascinating. <laughs> Just like, have you ever watched Scandal? Like the way that Olivia like walks and talks. You know how she does the walk and talk with her hips. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever seen Scandal. That's literally like a day in a lobbyist life, right? Like in between, you're catching people in between sessions. You're yeah, like, hey, yeah. let me talk to you. And you're twitching. You walk in and you're talking and you're trying to give your case statement and <laughs> just trying to make sure that they believe in you. And then you're following up, but it's. You know, like I said, I'm all into transformational relationships. Like I, I have to, I can't just run after you uh, walking across 
you know, the building and talk to you for 30 seconds. Like, I really need to form a relationship with you. And I really like, I want to know your family, right? Like, yep. I want to make sure your health is good, right? Like, I do that with every single person that I meet. And I think that's just a global majority thing. I know we're very, you know, collective. We're very, um, uh, we're, we're, we give a lot of collective care to each other. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, lobbying is interesting. Yeah, we we give a fuck. It's uh, it's 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 um, yeah, it's it's changed. It changes depending on what room you're in. You see that more often than most, and I'm sure that you're able to uh, that that affects you in some way. And so this is a little bit off script, but I, I wonder how you take care of yourself in those in those moments. How do you how do you make sure that you're good enough to come back the next day? It sounds like it could be really exhausting. I am terrible at that. I always tell people I'm not good at self care. I try to do better. Um, uh, but I do have a Nintendo Switch, so that helps me get hey. through it. Um, and then on my podcast, I told you I started implementing a siesta time frame. So right. every day from 12 to 2, I basically take a, a, a break, a siesta. I don't really go to sleep, but I'll like process things. I'll lay down if I need to. If I want to go get my nails done, I'll get my nails done, <laughs> right? Like I take care of myself because, you know, when you work, especially in a nonprofit, you, you start work when you get up, mm -hmm. you finish work when you get ready to hit the, the bed and you don't have time for yourself. You don't have time. Like I always get frustrated that the weekend is only two days because like I need to wash, I need to clean, I got to cook, I got to do everything, iron clothes. And I can do that now on my, my siesta. I can actually do things. I can go grocery shopping. What? Instacart grocery shopping, I could like do stuff. Um, so I think that's a, these are smaller ways of how I uh, take care of myself. Um, I'm trying to get to the better, like big things. Like people are like, I go on a retreat once a year. Like I wanna, I wanna get up to that point where I'm going into the middle of a forest somewhere for a retreat off the grid and just like reflecting on life. Ooh, well, let me let me hold you accountable to that, and I'll do it with love and care. I'll be your okay, I'll, I'll adapt. That, I'll adapt that then. So I'll say I want to go to a Caribbean island on there the beach, reflecting on life. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be in the forest. I want to be in the beach. A retreat, yes, uh, that what works for you. I mean, as long as you're you're getting filled up, you're able to read a little bit, you're able to to not think about work for a minute. Um, that's crazy. I talked to a lot of executive directors on this podcast and, and it's, it's same there too. 9am, 9pm. Like you said, it's the minute you wake up to the minute you're, you're, you're sleeping and that's not sustainable. Um, but I hope that um, these, these self-care mechanisms that you're, you're hoping to cultivate, keep you going. Cause we need you Quanice. We need you in this world. Keep it going. Oh, we need us all. We, we all in this together. Speaking of uh, let's talk about pace, that project that you and I are working on. Um, Progressive Arts Education Coalition pronounced PACE. Tell us, uh, tell the world what it is and why it's so needed. Uh, what is PACE? This is exciting, I guess. <laughs> um, and to kind of keep it real, the, the folks who are organizing PACE are members of the uh, Arts Education Council, um, which was uh, a council we all, all participated in that was a part of Americans for the Arts. And so there was a lot of hoopla about, and trying to hold Americans for the Arts accountable about the things that they did not do necessarily. And so 
Um, arts education often gets left out in a lot of our conversations on a national level, and we often have um, folks advocating for funding for arts education, but they often aren't necessarily doing the arts education, right? Like they are taking the money and they're gatekeeping the money um, in regards to arts education programming. And this is not necessarily AFTA, but this is this is arts, the arts field in general. Just like looking at institutions who like get a lot of money for education programs and just pretend that they care about education when they really care about presenting. So um, uh, we all came together and was basically like, hey, we need an alternative. We need a national alternative who can help organize people all over the country um, and create a national uh, policy agenda about arts education and how we could best support arts education and that we're making sure that we're including the voices of people who do this work every single day and support their communities every single day. And so the PACE came out. At first we were called something else, but then now we're called PACE. <laughs> so PACE, uh, because I like PACE because it <laughs> it makes me think about, oh, we're we're taking it one step at a time, right? Like we're 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 trying to fuck shit up, but we are also being intentional about the things that we do. Uh, we're being very intentional about the decisions that we're making. We're being intentional about who we're collabor collaborating with. And so so to me it's a, it's almost like a uh, uh, I would say it's a family. It's like an arts education family versus it just being like a, a council or a coalition or everything else. Like we really care about one another and we really want to support one another on a national landscape, right? And that's a that's a lot to he that's a lot that's a huge burden to bear because, but we've noticed that, right? Like we noticed that there's so many people on the ground. Um, you know, an example is T, who is also on the arts education council who literally does anything and everything for her students in Sacramento. And, you know, people are taking money and resources away from her when she's she's the one creating the most impact. And we know there's so many similar cases like that around the country. And so PACE is here to bring that, that, that uh, national collective energy so that we all can uh, move towards fucking shit up together. Let's fuck it up together, everybody. Yes. Um, that's such a great description. And, and I'm glad you brought up T, um, a, an amazing gem in the community in Sacramento and certainly doing stuff that can be scaled, right? Like how can an organization like PACE help just make, make some open source documents available? Like how do you do this in your communities, right? And how, what do you need to advocate on the level um, that Kwanis you are advocating in Maryland, right? Like let's, let's bring it together um, with, with, like you said, intention step at a time, one step at a time. Yeah. And then also leveraging each other's strengths, right. Mm -hmm. and, and supporting each other too, right. Like if I'm a, if I'm a statewide lobbyist, right. Like how can I support these smaller institutions to make sure that they're getting what they need, right? And just thinking about like ways we can, you know, smaller institutions might have the the immediate connections to community members, like to the students and to parents, right? Like what are some ways that we all, we all have strengths. So we just have to figure out, it's like pieces of a puzzle. You're trying to figure it all out together. I love that, especially mitigating the weaknesses that maybe somebody has or some organization has or some community has with the strengths that we can all share. It's almost decolonizing the processes, right? Like we're not asking for anything in return. We're simply just reciprocating. Yep, exactly. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, we have a, uh, their pace has an event coming up. And by the time this podcast airs, it may or may not be uh, happening. Um, but when and where is this event? 
Pace is happening. Uh, we're having a town hall happening during Arts and Education Week, September 13th, 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, we are also partnering with Creative Generation, who will be helping us uh, host the town hall. Um, and this is, again, this is an opportunity to create a national policy agenda for arts education. So if you could be there, please come. Hopefully uh, we'll have the registration details. If this is afterward, then we'll just probably have a recording of it. All right. Well, so Pace has an event coming up November 1st. It's a Monday from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, or if you're like me on the West Coast, 4 to 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We're working with Creative Generation to be able to make it happen. You know, this collective of Pace uh, has has jobs. That we we do our things in our own communities, and it's important to have an organization like Creative Generation come together and bring us all in the same place, while also being the backbone of what we can do together. One of those things, those backbone things, is creating a sort of record of what happened. You know, in addition to having a recording of the event, if you cannot make it, we hope you can. Um, we'll have a white paper that's produced, something that tells us what we found. What what did the community tell us they wanted from the sector and as their um, national policy agenda and, and, and how we want to advocate for ourselves. So that'll be a, a big part of uh, this, this upcoming event. And that will be the first thing you see. And um, we have a special guest as well, don't we, Connie's? Yeah. And we have a special speaker, Sandra Bowie, um, phenomenal arts education advocate. Uh, she was the former vice president of NJPAC and she does a lot of amazing work. She's on the board of the National Guild for Community Arts Education. She's worked at Ifiteo Cultural Arts Academy. She's wow. just amazing. I love her. So I'm looking forward to her being our speaker. Shout out to Sandra Bowie. Thank you so much for mentioning her. Um, what is NJPAC? Just so our, oh, our sorry. The New Jersey Performing Arts Center. There it is. Yeah. Amazing. Well, all right, we're getting down to the final few questions. And as the listeners of this podcast know, it's a bit of a lightning round. Um, so it's five questions, and we're just going to go at a quick pace, Quanis. First question, who inspires you? My aunt. And how about who keeps you motivated? The, the kids, the future mm -hmm. generations. Where are you most at home? On the beach. <laughs> i'm a cancer so that's why like cancers love the water we need to be in water like that's the requirement for our lives Perhaps. i grew up around water i grew up on staten island so that's water on staten island i, I live in dc there's some i guess it's dirty water around dc so like <laughs> i have to be i have to be around water that's amazing i feel the same way how do you stay focused uh doing multiple things at multiple times <laughs> A little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little, little bit of that. that. Okay, yeah, I'm taking the spurts. And final question, why change? Why not change? Ooh, true. Yeah. True. It's, why not? It's necessary. It's no more, we've always done it. It's no more, this is how it's always been. You know, it's, it's time for change. And if we're not changing, we're not growing. If we're not growing, we're dead. So. Ooh. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to die. I'm not dead. I'm not trying to die. <laughs> Aquanis, this has been so amazing. Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. It was so great learning more about you. Um, 
I appreciate your journey. And I know many, many, many folks, including myself, uh, see themselves in parts of your journey. So keep doing what you do. I'm excited to participate more with you and other things that we, uh, we can build together. And I hope uh, this audience gets to hear from us at the Pace Town Hall. Thank you. And we're back. Ashra, what a great conversation with Kwanis. I love listening to both of you independently, so it only made it so much better to listen to you together. Now, I know it's been a couple of days. What are your thoughts about your conversation? Has anything stuck with you? Oh man, just the term, and yes, this is colorful language, but this is the term fuck shit up. Oh my gosh, I can't stop thinking about it. And it's such a tech, it feels like such a tech term, you know, like innovation and all these other things and fuck shit up and start something else and, 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 and you know, don't look back. Um, she's using it in a way that um, is actually, I think, similar, right? Systems change. Um, mm -hmm. It's a transformative leadership. It's transformative um, relationships um, and intentionality, right? Collaborating in ways that actually lift everybody up in a lot of bigger ways. Um, so I really love the sort of reframing that she brought. What's something that you noticed, Jeff, that you really appreciated? That was actually the same exact thing. I, I think one of the pieces of your conversation that is just so indicative of, of, of Kwanis as a human, but also of the work that she in particular has been involved with, ranging from pedagogies in classrooms to starting a new lobbying firm in Washington, D.C., to her work as an executive director of a statewide nonprofit organization or founder of the Arts Administrators of Color Network, is that intentionality to continuously progress the work and the field and the people within the work and the field. And, you know, it's not, it's not fucking shit up like for the sake of being a disruptor. You know, mm -hmm. some people want to do that. There are people out in this world that have opinions that are very different from me that truly just like want to get a reaction. But, but Kwanis and, and her work is really striving to make things better and to not be complacent, which is just truly like the entire ethos of this whole podcast and everyone yeah. that we talk to. That's right. All that she wants to do is 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 make it better and 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 honestly, like give back in a way that she's um, been given back to, and maybe even more so. Right? Reciprocation isn't even the name of the game here. It's it's leaving it better than you found it. Um, right. Generating solutions, right? And in ways that maybe this particular generation that she's in, the generation that you and I share with her, uh, are, are able to do. We're able to see it maybe in a way that uh, other words weren't. And Gen, Gen Z after us will do the same, right? And okay. um, I'm just so ready for more, more folks at Quanties to, to emerge. I totally agree. And, you know, the thing that stood out to me about, about her work and, and what you all discussed was this idea of sort of the radical centering of, like, lived experience, right? So mm. Quanties was a music teacher and became involved through, as you mentioned in the episode, you know, a couple of degrees and things and experiences, fellowships and things like that, but ultimately ended up being an executive director of an organization that serves arts educators, founding a network of people that are working together to uplift arts administrators who are people of color, which she is, working to lobby on behalf of the sector that she has been a part of for both her career and just her life, like even as a young person. And I think this nature of actually 
placing people in roles of leadership or influence who have done the exact work and have firsthand knowledge of those experiences is really where it's at, right? You know, like, I just think that it is so silly to think that there could be lobbyists on behalf of arts education that have never been in an arts classroom, or that there might be executive directors of nonprofit organizations that are not actually from the field of work that that organization is in, you know? And it's something that seems so basic, but it's a really pervasive issue, don't you think? Yeah, and not that they shouldn't be there, the folks who haven't had those experiences, because indeed, sometimes there's nice, um, even disruption that happens from folks who have no idea what's going on and just provide solutions, fresh perspectives, we all know, but um, not, you know, nothing against those folks, but you're right, that there is something very, very, very special about that lived experience. Somebody like Juanice, you know, um, and you and I and folks who've lived um, the life of being someone who's affected by arts education and then going out there um, way later in the world, um, advocating for it, building our whole lives around it, um, is certainly a type, right? A type of administrator, a type of advocate. Um, and, and what it does also is reflect the sort of epitome of social justice and racial equity work, which is centering the most impacted in the solutions that we create and using those, those solutions and building a network of those most impacted to be able to further advocate, to further build the story, to further um, uh, train people to tell those stories that have, that are real, that affected you, that then go on to affect others. That centering of the most impacted is actually really sophisticated racial equity and social justice work that you don't see very often. And somebody like Kwanis, it not only does that, but also does something else sophisticated in that realm, which is reporting back, which is sort of giving people updates of like, hey, you told us these stories. They went on to make these changes. Um, and we really appreciate you for it. Just, just leaving it there. So, yeah. Um, yeah, no, so I, I think you're entirely right. And there's so much that we can that can be learned from that, whether we're doing, I don't know, research or storytelling or organizational leadership or any type of decision-making. And that's actually one thing that I want to underscore. So the organization that Kwanis runs now, she is the executive director of Arts Education and Maryland Schools Alliance, or AIMS. And that is an organization that has a really interesting history. I, I've worked with them um, before Kwanis's tenure there um, and through her tenure. And um, I happen to be a resident of Maryland, so they are, in fact, like my statewide advocacy group. And so um, I, you know, try to support them in every way that I can. But one project that they've launched that Kwanis mentioned in sort of the, the litany of projects that they have is this campaign school for arts educators mm. to run for office. And I think she sort of couched it in the sense that like they can support people, but also can't because of the tax laws and, and, and um, election laws and things like that. But just to like pull that thread out for a second to say that, you know, arts educators running for office is one of the best things that I've heard of in a really long time. Now, in a previous role of mine, and I won't get, you know, too preachy here because I, I certainly could, but we'd often talk about different advocacy strategies, right? On, on one end, you have like the hardcore storytelling that you want the mom and the kid that their lives were transformed because XYZ happened to them. Then you sort of have like the data, like here's the gap in access and it happens to fall along certain lines, which are usually economic and racial. And, you know, there's, um, the data side. And then there's truly this other camp of what you were just talking about, of like sort of 
radically centering those who are most impacted. So if we really want to create transformational change for arts education, why are we not packing every school board election with arts educators? Why are we not electing them to state legislatures or other um, elected bodies? You know, in my previous role, I used to bring people to Capitol Hill quite a bit to talk to their elected officials about issues of arts and culture and arts education and, and things like that. And it's funny, that was my joke. I'm like, there are, you know, however many um, members of Congress from your state, guess how many are arts educators? And if it was California and there's something like, you know, 50 uh, members of Congress or something like that, they'd say, oh, one. And you're like, no, actually in, in all 435 House seats and all 100 Senate seats, there are zero. And, you know, wow. that's something now, you know, if you had one person from every profession in the country represented in Congress, like it, that's not realistic. And, and do we really need arts educators, you know, in tons of seats? No, we need people who understand the issues of arts educators. But it also says something like, imagine if there were, you know, mm -hmm. imagine if you could have that representation and that visibility and that area of expertise represented in our decision-making bodies. I mean, it would be really transformative. And I am sure I'm citing quote unquote studies that I don't actually know how to cite here, but I'm sure that there is some research that shows that when people who have a certain profession are at the table, you know, mm -hmm. the advocacy for the needs of that profession um, and the impacts of that work are met. Um, and I think that that's a really cool example of some sort of disruptive work, that why change work, if you will, that's happening across the state of Maryland. Oh, that's super exciting. And what, what a time to be in Maryland, I'm sure. Um, there's certainly, and, and, and I hope that it becomes a, <laughs> I hope it becomes a beacon uh, and, an, and an inspiration to others. There's something about arts educators and arts administrators that is like such an underdog <laughs> effect that like, I'm just smiling thinking about it, just the idea of, um, you know, we like to be in the background. We like to sort of make things happen and have the impact, but not necessarily take up too much space. Um, and having sort of a big campaign school of arts educators or arts administrators in general, uh, or even educators in general, um, do the thing is, um, it's kind of hilarious to me, but also something to fucking aim for, you right. know, like we should all be seeking to distribute that power, right? And that power and only can only be distributed if you're in seats uh, where that power does lie. So hey go for it i that's exactly right from my perspective and you know you you sort of invoked the arts managers or the arts administrator side of things and that's another piece of quanice's quanice's mm. work of supporting arts administrators particularly those who identify as people of color because the way that the field has evolved which is a fascinating history this is a book i want to write one day right you know we we you and i mm -hmm. and quanice are of this generation of sort of the first round of people that have degrees in this right. field, right? right? Our our predecessors invented the field and never had the degrees, which also means they didn't have the student debt and also didn't really have the, you know, kind of full understanding of, of what it looks like when a field professionalizes. Anyways, that's, that's mm. a whole other uh, conversation to have. But what's really interesting, though, is it does actually set us up to look at those systems, right? Systems that were just invented by happenstance and to say, hey, listen, you know, there are better ways that we can do this. You know, when we bring in those more perspective, those diverse uh, perspectives or more unique lived experiences, when we broaden, you know, the type of impact that are seen. And I think it's really funny because 
when he sort of mentioned like, you know, she was so thankful for uh, the master's program that she did in arts management at American University and full disclosure, I now teach in that program. Um, not when Kwanis was there, but now today I do. And, you know, it's funny because there are certain truths like, yeah, you do need to know how to budget and, mm -hmm. and do financial management for organizations. Yes, you do need to understand sort of the intricacies of certain types of laws that are specific to the arts and culture field, like intellectual property and copyright and things like that. But it's also pretty cool to think about the fact that that process of sort of learning together in a cohort is in fact disrupting sort of the old boys club Ooh. that has set up, right? Because we intentionally are increasing access through, you know, government subsidized loans, and we are increasing participation through programs that focus on culturally specific um, cultural institutions. We are doing different things rather than just like the way it happened to shake out for this previous generation. And so I think when people like Kwanis continue to perpetuate these cycles of, of alumni to current student mentorship or, you know, work to um, invoke some disruptive ideas to challenge the status quo of what is taught in some of these longstanding programs. It's, it's particularly interesting to me to observe that different trajectory and to, to look at the long-term effects and say, oh, you know, now that we do have the first generation of people like you and I teaching in these types of programs to other students, how will we continue to see the shift in the field grow away from that norm of people who invented it? And no disrespect for those who really got the field established, tremendous respect to many of them. But as we continue to professionalize and, mm. um, and you know, forms, norm, storm, and whatever the saying is, you know, <laughs> it, it will continue to evolve naturally. And I think it'll be really, really fascinating to see what comes next. Yeah, I mean, like you said earlier, intentionality is such a big part of that. And the folks who built that field, to your point, were also um, seat of the pants. You know, they didn't really necessarily know what they were doing, or if they did, it came from a different context or perspective, right? Business um, or philanthropy at large that comes from sort of relief or, or other sort of forms, not quite arts and culture. And so I wonder, um, too... Uh, what that means, right? You said the professionalization of a field. I've never heard that term before. That's such an interesting thing to think about. Um, but I see we're having that with even social media and the creative economy work um, that we talked about, even with Dan uh, at, at Nifty a few weeks ago. Um, the fact that there's content makers out there uh, and streamers, there's no school for that necessarily, but it is, um, but there certainly is that sort of intellectual property sort of uh, uh creative commons all sort of all that kind of kind of work and so uh there's a lot we're learning now that'll be implicated for for this generation now like it's actively happening not to mention covid and all the other things right you know and it's funny i want to actually like hold on that for a second and just share <laughs> some stuff i'm going to get into full professor mode because this is in fact lecture one that we did last week but that there, the professionalization of a field is a term I talk about all the time because I think it's really interesting in the arts management or, or in particular the arts and cultural education management, Ooh. like subsection of the field, right? Because that in and of itself is a hybrid field of education and arts and culture. And also then you add in sort of that management side of mm. things, right? And there's, there is no professionalized um, degree program, right, to run an arts education organization, right? Like you either do arts management or you do education and then you kind of figure out the in-between or you're like Kwanis and get 10 degrees um, <laughs> and smash them all together. You know, and what's, and same thing with me, I 
we were on exactly similar paths. And so what's interesting though, is that um, there's actually a bunch of scholarship, um, primarily Donald Schoen in the 1960s or Stephen Brookfield in the 1980s, who have written a lot about the use of critical reflection, sort of the unpacking of one's own lived experiences and their trajectory Ooh. to where they are. And Donald Schoen talks about in his book, I, I believe it's called the, the Critical, Critically Reflective Practitioner or something to that effect. Um, I cited it in like a million papers in grad school. But basically what he talks about is that the professionalization of a field, and he looked at like landscapers and nurses and educators, oh, wow. of it's when the field actually determines sort of their own standards and ethics of practice Ooh. and what that means. So what I would argue is exactly what we're talking about is essential, right? We might have set up those standards of practice for arts management or education or nursing or whatever field at some time. But if we don't continue to innovate on those and update those to be responsive to the times, we're just gonna perpetuate these exclusive cycles that don't actually allow us to do the best job that we can. And one could argue that's happening rapidly in the nursing sector or in the education sector or anything else. And so in the arts management side, how do we sort of get ahead of the curve? And before we actually really set up a lot of these standards or ethics of practice, actually kind of set forward in that critically reflective way to say, yeah, 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 this might be doing, this might be what we're doing now, but we're going to look at it again in a few years and we're going to constantly update and we're going to um, make sure that we're being highly responsive to the communities to which I love are. that. I think there's there's the, the values aspect of it comes shines way through and I wonder when that happens and it happens in different times for different areas of the field. What you had just mentioned made me think about the CYD uh, term and program and, and and all of that. CYD stands for Creative Youth Development um, for those who who don't know and it's um you know, it it got uh, its own sort of legs and has its own values. Like creative youth development is, for all intents and purposes, three three main values. It's racial racial equity and social justice. It's youth voices. It's collective action. Um, and and knowing that those three values exist to to sort of bolster or shore up the field of creative youth development to create legitimacy within that field to create um, opportunities. For, um, for impact through funding and investments um, because you have defined it in a way that does relate to other sort of fields that are related such as youth, positive youth development um, and, and also arts education, right? It's kind of in the middle there. Um, that so that that sort of small subsector of the field has then sort of erupted into its own sort of column, right? Like this, this sort of pillar now. Uh, I wonder mm -hmm. what you think, think about that. Oh, well, I have a lot of thoughts about this. And this, again, could be another episode, uh, one that certainly requires a cocktail for me to sort of let loose. But my initial thoughts is, you know, I, because of a former role that I sat in, I had the really distinct privilege of being at like the very first gathering of what was being coined as the creative youth development field wow. in 2014 in Boston, Massachusetts, hosted by the President's Committee on the Arts and the Humanities and the Massachusetts Cultural Council and the National Guild for Community Arts Education. And there was sort of a policy and advocacy agenda that was put forward to help grow this field, which included a call for more and more money, which was received from individual funders and the National Endowment for the Arts and so much more to um, have the field actually lead the work, right? Instead of having that top-down approach of a couple of very well-educated, informed people, <laughs> 
sitting in a conference room in Washington, D.C. saying this is what the field needs, it actually brought together, I think it was 300 people at that very first convening and then several hundred others over the series of many convenings for years wow. to put forward sort of an, an action agenda or blueprint, it ended up being called, uh, to conduct some of this documentary research, to look at different models of like evaluation and funding and communications. And it's been really cool. And what's most unique about this is that the model of having that grassroots fueling of a sector like CYD was happening or like is happening with Quanice and arts education in Maryland mm. schools, you know, is that you, it ends up sort of dissipating, right? There's no um, distinct ownership. It's not like this organization right. put out a, a policy document or whatever, but that everyone sort of has it. And what that means, and, and I think this is a personal opinion, that when there's sort of healthy discourse around it, and I'll give you an example, when the name Creative Youth Development came forward, it was because they wanted to align with those youth development principles and the positive youth development sector that you mentioned, but they wanted the creative learning aspect from the arts education side of things. And there were some people that showed up to every meeting that always wanted to go back to the beginning. Why are we calling this creative youth development? And I remember like wanting to like throw myself out like a 50th floor window of a hotel being like, I cannot have this conversation <laughs> one more time. Like at a certain point, you know, we just need to sort of get on board and, and move, yep. it, move it forward. But that is that critical reflection process that we're talking about. It's always sort of looking back. And it's building buy-in, right? It's building, right. It's building, building. buy-in, but also building a movement, frankly. Right, right, right. And, and you know, the thing is, with that critically reflective process, is it really, what these scholars say, is really intended to look back at one's own lived experience. So mm. the very start of your conversation with Quanice, you sort of had her trace, her like lineage of how she got to where she is now. And she shared an experience that both you and I actually had of very early arts interventions that allowed us to be in touch with artists and to experience um, cultural institutions and to create our own sort of narratives um, through, you know, music or photography or, or creative writing or dance or theater. And I think that that's such an important piece, right? That we all have these experiences and we have to sort of unpack from the start where it came to be to figure out what worked and what didn't work so that we as professionals can actually go forward and implement those things you know, with, with that insight. And intentionality, right? right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that that's such a big piece of it. And you're right, it does get lost. And sometimes maybe there is, like I said earlier, that discomfort around being the figurehead of a thing or being an example of what you want to see in the world, because um, that is inherently uncomfortable to people, especially maybe is maybe especially arts administrators and arts educators, you know, um, we are an awkward bunch, um, certainly, uh, but uh, those stories are so, so, so so, so powerful. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Now, tell me a little bit about your story. You had a very similar experience to Kwani's, didn't you? Yeah, so um, I, yeah, and I'll, and I'll be quick, because I know we've talked about the story before, but um, but it's actually, um, I recently was reflecting upon it because I was looking at Seattle's K through 12 arts plan. Um, in that arts plan, which was created in 2012, um, there is a case study about my elementary school, Adams Elementary oh, in, wow. the Ballard, yeah, in the Ballard neighborhood of Seattle. Uh, I ended up in 
Ballard in Seattle because my father was working at uh, at Denny's at the time when we were living in LA, just came to America a couple of years before. And he got a transfer up to the Seattle Denny's because he had a homie up here in Seattle and wanted to be closer to some of the community up here. And he got a transfer to the Denny's in Ballard, there were only like two or three Denny's in the Seattle area, and he got randomly transferred to this one. And because of that Denny's, he um, found an apartment uh, nearby, and the closest school was Adams Elementary, where we're literally a block away. And so, little to my knowing, little to my family's sort of like like research, like we ended up at this amazing school that that valued diversity, that valued the arts so much so that as I was reading this arts plan just the other day, I was like. This was my experience. What they had done was make sure that each, that everybody in that elementary school did the same art project um, three times or three different arts projects that every single person in that school had done together, building a sense of community and building a sense of um, that sort of individual and yet collective experience that we're all experiencing. We had a diversity day. Like I remember very clearly we had one day a year where um, folks would get dressed up in their sort of traditional ethnic garb. Like this was like a very diverse school for the neighborhood that it ended up getting gentrified into, which is uh, largely uh, European and white. I mean, Ballard in general has always been a very Nordic place. We have the biggest Norwegian population outside of Norway. We have the biggest sit and demai festival outside of Norway, um, but ended up being a working class neighborhood in the 90s. And in the 90s, um, a lot of sort of um, uh, Ethiopian, Somali, um, Afghan, Pakistani, like just like all sorts of folks ended up in Vietnamese and Korean, like all sorts of folks ended up being um, in this school. And we all used to celebrate each other's cultures. I remember very vividly too that um, even kindergarten, which was half-day kindergarten at the time, uh, arts was integrated in a big way. I remember uh, there was a whole unit of study about Italy, and we created a little Italian flag uh, and a little boot shaped of Italy um, with beads, you know, which is, of course, uh, many, many types of traditions, including indigenous traditions uh, and, and bead making and bead, um, bead wear. So um, all sorts of things. Um, little did I know, uh, in fact, I didn't know until like a few weeks ago that that was an intention by the principal at the time. Who, who, by the way, had become a donor of mine at the various institutions that I used to uh, to be in leadership for. She was a consistent donor. Um, and now I know why. It's because she she led me on this path without knowing it. Miss Nielsen, shout out to Principal Nielsen uh, from, from Adams Elementary School. Um, she uh, then ended up passing that off to the next principal, right? And that school still continues to be an arts-rich uh, elementary school that ends up, you know, probably spouting out little Ashrafs and Jeffs and Kwanis all over the place. Kind of amazing, right? <laughs> That's actually a terrifying thought. We, I think <laughs> the world only needs one of each of those things, uh, particularly when we're all in cahoots uh, with each other. But thanks for sharing that, Ashraf. I mean, I had a very similar experience. It's funny that you said that and, and just sort of named the, the shared arts experience that everyone did. I distinctly remember that we made in third to fifth grade um, at Wentworth Elementary School in Scarborough, Maine, we made masks um, with our visual art teacher, Miss Libby, that were actually sort of mounted on clay squares and they went in like three rows around the top of the um, hallway yeah, wall. Yeah, totally. And, and that school was recently just demolished and um, which it, it needed to be demolished a long time ago. But it's funny because I, like that was actually a thing at our 10 year high school reunion was we're like, where are those now? Like, wow. did someone save them or not? Because for generations of students, they were 
consistent. It was a thing um, you did. Always. And yeah, and, and they were not pretty, many of them. <laughs> but you know, it was that shared creative experience, that sense of ownership in the school. So that's that's something that's really cool. But this practice that we're just doing right now of sort of critical reflection mm-hmm. really impacts how we carry forward in our work, whether as as researchers or funders or, or program uh, managers or implementers or anything like that. And that's something that I think is such an advantage to the work that you and Quanis are doing now. You brought it up in the interview, uh, the work with PACE, the Progressive Arts Education Coalition, pronounced PACE. So talk to me a little bit about that and, and what you hope to achieve through, through that work and the event that's coming up just next week. Yeah, so um, PACE emerged out of essentially um, what, what the arts... Uh, education leaders who would come together um, in a previous organization that had been sort of hi- on hiatus, we had we had come together to essentially fill in a gap. The gap being um, that of representation of what arts education as a field needed um, in the national sphere, specifically in policy and lobbying and and advocacy work. Because if you don't have folks telling the story. To the folks who are in power, especially if those folks who are in power are not arts educators or arts administrators, um, you certainly need a plan uh, and 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 in the community engagement strategy, you got to know what is happening out there at the grassroots level so that you can advocate for that grassroots level being lifted up, right? And um, as that was not happening, perhaps um, it will happen again. Uh, regardless, we need a sort of hard stop and a refresh button so that we can figure out where we are now, what's changed during COVID, what the context is, and be able to really articulate and, and advocate for what it is the field needs, not decided by somebody who knows sort of what is on senators' minds and can, can align to their needs uh, themselves, but actually needs of the field and not any compromises that um, have not been um, sort of shared or, or, or transparent, right? So we're trying to bring a transparent approach to how policy development and advocacy is done. And like you said, Jeff, that's happening pretty soon, November 1st, it's a Monday, 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern time, 4 to 5.30 p.m. Pacific time. And yeah, it's a collective visioning roundtable, sort of new way to think about what a town hall is. And we'd love to have you there. And thanks, Jeff and Creative Generation for uh, making it happen with us. Well, we are absolutely thrilled because everything that you just said is absolutely what we're about um, not only in the supporting of sort of the field to determine all of those things for themselves, as we've been talking about here, mm-hmm. but also to support all of you. Um, you know, that's one thing that that we recognize is that we have, as a collective of about 12 people all over the world, you know, we have a strength in helping people activate their craziest ideas. And um, we're really thrilled to be working with this. So we'll go ahead and drop the registration information in the show notes, um, and you can watch all of the um, all of the social media and newsletters and so forth from Creative Generation um, for that information, as well as all of the social media from the newly formed Progressive Arts Education Coalition or PACE um, hitting your inboxes soon. So we um, really are looking forward to that event and Ashraf will have to report back afterwards um, in a future episode. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, Ashraf, thanks again for sharing your conversation with our community um, that you had with Kwanis and I look forward to seeing you again sometime soon. 
All right. Thanks, Jeff. And thanks, Why Change community. I'll talk to you all soon. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. If you would like to support this podcast aimed at amplifying the voices of creative changemakers around the world, please consider donating through the link located in the episode's show notes. These show notes contain all sources discussed in the episode. Be sure to follow, like, subscribe, and share the Why Change podcast to make sure you and your networks get episodes delivered directly to you and that you don't miss any stories of creative work happening around the world. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Also, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at info at creative-generation.org. We would love to hear your ideas, the topics you want to learn about, and why change matters to you. Our show is produced and edited by Daniel Stanley. Our music is by Distant Cousins. A special thanks to our contributors, co-hosts, and the team at Creative Generation for their support.